Church family, if you would, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Don't panic. We are still in Leviticus 8 and 9 this morning. But the reason we're reading from the Gospel of Luke is because we're in Leviticus 8 and 9 in the context of Genesis to Revelation. So we've got a bit of ground to cover this morning, um, into this afternoon, probably. We'll see. Um, But I'm actually going to be reading uh, Luke 24. I'm going to read verse 27 and verse 44 of Luke 24. And then we will prepare to look at what we looked at last week in Leviticus 8 and 9 through the context of redemptive history as it's revealed to us through the Scripture. So Luke 24, starting in verse 27, and then I'm going to read just verse 27 and then just verse 44. The precious and errant infallible Word of God says, And beginning at Moses, all the prophets, he, being Jesus, expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And then verse 44. Then he said to them, being Jesus, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, we have already been blessed Uh, by your word this morning. We have sung deep gospel truths to one another, being reminded of the person and work of Christ through whom and in whom we have had our fellowship with you restored. Father, I pray as we continue to look at your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would impress these truths upon our hearts. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, help us to respond as your children, in a way that honors and glorifies you. We pray this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, if you, if you, if you didn't happen to be here with us last week, uh, we looked at Leviticus chapters 8 and 9 in some detail. Really coming to understand what it means in its immediate context in the book of Leviticus. And really... At its heart is the idea that God provided a way through a mediator for fellowship. That's what we looked at. That God desires fellowship with his people, therefore he provided a way. Remember, his people had no way to approach him in their sinfulness and we are in desperate need of a mediator. Well... In Luke 24, again, I came here for a different reason, because what we have in Luke 24, as you saw, is ultimately Jesus revealing to his disciples that their Hebrew Bible was all about him. Ultimately, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, as we read in verse 44, that that is really the three sections that make up the Hebrew Bible in its entirety. And so Jesus spends a majority of his 40 days before his ascension explaining to the disciples about how these scriptures instruct them about himself, Jesus. Have you ever picked up a book off the shelf, turned to the middle, and just began reading there? Assuming that you will understand the entire story as you do so? Have you ever taken a book and just picked the first three paragraphs of chapter 15 and then put it away assuming you understand the whole story? Maybe you have the Harry Dunn when Harry met Sally method of 
reading the first page and the last page, deciding whether or not you understand it. Well, look, none of those ways are very effective in attempting to understand the, the material. Well, the Bible really is no different, even though we, we treat it as it is. Uh, yes, it's actually many books written by different authors over 1,500 years, absolutely. But, but ultimately, the Bible is still one story written by one author recording his redemptive plan revealed throughout history. Amen. So, and that's what we find in the Scriptures. And so if we're really going to understand God's redemptive story, then we must see the story as a whole, attempting to understand all of its parts as they relate individually and as they relate to the whole story. So that way, each and every story in the Bible relates to, as Paul puts in Ephesians 1, each and every story relates to the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. So again, today I want to understand Leviticus 8 and 9 in light of that story, redemptive history. How does Leviticus 8 and 9 relate to this overarching story of God's redemptive purposes in Christ, which He fulfilled in the fullness of time? Now we're going to do that by by looking at several things about this way that God provided. This is why last week is important, right? Last week we looked in detail about how God provided a way. Now we're going to look at several things about this way that God provided. That's our goal from Genesis to Revelation. So strap in. We might as well get started, right? Let's start with this the way foreshadowed. We're going to look first and foremost at the way foreshadowed. We'll spend a lot of time here. And, and here's what we're doing. As, as we take this kind of aerial view of Scripture as a whole, we're going we're gonna to take a plane ride. And we're going to land that plane at various points. And we are going to do so initially right here at the beginning. So, we, so we're landing and we see at the very beginning that, that Adam is actually a priest. Adam was a priest of God in the Garden of Eden. We, we don't often think of Adam as a priest, but, but in, indeed he was. He experienced unhindered fellowship with God. Adam did not need a mediator. His fellowship was direct. He stood and ministered in the presence of God. He had a clean conscience and his fellowship was pure to light. Now, he was still to offer sacrifices. And I think we're prone to miss this in the garden story. We think of sacrifices and and we automatically think of blood most times, right? Of course we do because we live after the fall where all sacrifices had to include blood. But, but even those gift and thank offerings that we think of were at least to be accompanied by bloody sacrifices. But Adam too, he was to offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Although his was different. He offered his sacrifices in the form of an obedient life. He was to lead in worship all of creation and his progeny. That was his responsibility. So Adam was a priest of God in the Garden of Eden. But as we're aware, Adam rejected his priestly responsibility and was impeached from his priestly office. Adam rejected his priestly responsibility and was impeached from his priestly office. Consider what you already know to be true from the fall of man in light of what we looked at last week of the priesthood. Remember, it was the priest's job, after all, to teach God's word. 
He was to distinguish between God's holy word and the defiling words of the serpent. And he failed. Not only so, Adam allowed the righteous worship of God to be traded for a worship of self and a worship of creation. Adam refused to offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving in the form of his obedience. Instead, he permanently defiled his offering. No longer was an offering of obedience even an option. Adam did not keep his hands clean, nor did he keep his heart pure. That's what we saw last week from Psalm 24, remember, was necessary for the priest who can ascend to the hill of the Lord. He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. Instead, Adam became defiled and was exiled from the unmediated presence of God. He no longer enjoyed that fellowship with God for which he was created. In fact, as we look at this account at the beginning of humanity, we see something marvelous. It's that the Lord himself is the one who steps in and fulfills the role of priest. This is what we see in the fall. The Lord comes in and fulfills the role of priest. In what way? How? Well, remember, just before Adam and Eve are exiled, who is it that sheds first blood in order to clothe them and cover their shame? It is the Lord. The Lord sets a precedent. Adam and Eve are allowed to live, but blood was shed. Life was given, and this act foreshadows a more elaborate sacrificial system that would once again allow Israel to experience fellowship with their God. So an offering of praise and thanksgiving in the form of obedience would no longer be sufficient. And I want to make sure we understand what this means. Man was created to live a life of obedience to the Lord. And, And this was an offering of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Now, that offering was still required of them. That offering is still mandated. Man is still to offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving through an obedient life. But now it would not be accepted by God if not accompanied by life. A blood sacrifice would be needed. And so Adam and his descendants would have to have their sins atoned for before they could even experience fellowship with God. And this idea is reinforced through The rejection of Cain's offering. Cain's thank offering. Remember, his thank offering was a a bloodless sacrifice. And the acceptance of Abel's offering. And Abel's offering was a bloody sacrifice. Okay, I want to get back on the plane. And as we board, take with you the sure idea that Adam was a priest who was called to offer the Lord an offering of thanksgiving and praise in the form of obedience, but failed. And by failing, he introduced death and the need for atonement for sin. So now as the plane takes off, we continue to trek through the book of Genesis, and we see in the first 11 chapters that sin abounds. I mean, it just runs rampant everywhere. People grow in wickedness, death increases. God is certainly gracious in not letting things get as bad as they could, but but the situation by the time we get to Babel is looking absolutely hopeless. Where is this restoration of fellowship? Where is the hope that we might once again stand in the unmediated presence of God with unhindered fellowship? That which we were created for. For if there is no hope for that, then there's no hope at all. Well, God's answer is Abraham. I know we, don't, we didn't make it very far on the plane ride this time. It's like an Atlanta flight, right? But we need to visit with Abraham for a moment. Don't miss this. Abraham was a new Adam. He was. 
Abraham was a new Adam. He was a new priest. He was promised a new garden. The promised land was to be a new garden with a new humanity. And it offered God that sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving in the form of obedience. They would be able to do so because their sins would be atoned for through bloody sacrifices. So Abraham's, Abraham's seed would become a royal priesthood that would mediate the blessing and to all the nations expanding the garden to the world. And when we consider that in the light of the rest of Scripture, when we come to that story in Genesis 22 that I had you read this week, we come to the story of God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and all of a sudden... we. We might not be as shocked at that story as we once were. It's not actually as surprising as we might think that God would command for Isaac to be sacrificed. I mean, the fact is, the wages for sin are death. This becomes crystal clear at this point. Remember, the most pervasive line for the the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis has been, And he died. You're you're supposed to hear that, and it's supposed to to wreck you a little bit as you understand what Genesis 1 and 2 is really about. You come to Genesis 5, and it's all that there is. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That refrain is over and over again. And it's punctuated by that mass fatality caused by the flood. Death is everywhere. And, And by the way, remember... We're focusing here on fellowship, God providing a way for fellowship with his people. And it's worth pointing out that nothing is more damaging to fellowship than death. (laughs) Makes sense, right? Nothing's more damaging to fellowship than death. As the psalmist will later write in Psalm 30 verse 9, What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? See, once death comes... Fellowship has ended. Death is the ultimate fellowship ender. Sit with the tension there for just a moment. Only the death of the offender could actually restore fellowship. But the death that was required would end fellowship. That, that's within that paradigm. There is, is what lies that tension that is never relieved throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You're supposed to sit with that. How is that going to work? Now, we have a momentary relief of that in the form of the bloody sacrificial system. The substitution of of bulls, goats, and sheep, but, but the repetition of that very system communicates that it ultimately doesn't take care of the problem. It is ultimately a band aid on a bullet wound. And so this tension goes on throughout the entire Old Testament. And back to Abraham, right? The command of Abraham to offer a son. It's not nearly as offensive as we first think. Here's why. Isaac's life belonged to God. And here's another thing. Isaac was not innocent. If the Lord required his life, it was his prerogative to take it. And the reason I say this is because we can't help with our Western mindset to think, well, our God wouldn't do that. That's not like our God. It's very offensive to us. But listen, the death of the seed of Abraham would be the way to restore fellowship. That would be the means. This is what the priest would do. Abraham, acting as the new priest, was to offer a bloody sacrifice. He would intercede. Abraham would satisfy divine justice and would mediate a new fellowship with God. 
And, and now we ask a different question. Now we ask, okay, so, so if this is, this is what was needed to restore fellowship with God, that Abraham would offer a sacrifice, then, then why would God stop him? Why would God stay his hand? Why not allow Isaac to be sacrificed? You want to know why? It's because Isaac's life was not sufficient. That's why. Not because Isaac did not deserve death, as we often want to interpret it. Isaac's death, his life, was not sufficient to atone for God's people. Isaac had his own sin problem. Isaac had his own debt to pay. The Lord simply used this situation to point to what would be required. A huge signpost on the way throughout redemptive history pointing toward Christ himself. The ultimate seed of Abraham who would lay down his life. If Abraham's seed was going to be a blessing to the nations... It would require his obedience even unto death. Okay, we're flying back over. We're back in the plane. We're we're fast forward. It's a time traveling plane, not just a regular plane. And we go to Exodus, where God has redeemed his people from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he enters into covenant with them. In a sense, fellowship is restored here. In Exodus, God redeems his people and fellowship is restored. He redeems his people and fellowship is restored. And that's that's really good news if you're reading the book of Genesis, right? Because up until this point, fellowship has been broken. But here at Mount Sinai, God constitutes his nation through whom the blessings are to come to all the nations. That's, That's good news. There's hope again for fellowship. This restored fellowship would require the mediation of the high priest. They would be the ones to stand in the gap and offer the bloody sacrifices. The Lord would once again accept their thank offerings, but they would have to be accompanied by their burn offerings, their sin offerings, their guilt offerings, and bloody sacrifices. That brings us secondly to not only the way foreshadowed, but the way established. The way established. And this is really exactly what we looked at last week in Leviticus. In fact, I don't think I've, I had a fill in the blank here, but maybe I did, and it's written in. The Lord provided a way through a mediator for fellowship with his people. Is that written into your notes? Good. Just testing. All right, we covered that in great detail last week, right? But, but I want to remind us briefly just, just what it was we saw. It was the Lord's idea. It was his doing. He came up with it. The way he provided was through priesthood that he established. In Leviticus 8, we read the the richly symbolic ceremony of the consecration of the high priest. We saw him washed, we saw him dressed, anointed, we saw him purified through his sacrifices and the, the blood of a sacrifice specifically. We saw him enjoying that covenant meal symbolizing the restored fellowship between himself and the Lord. And then we saw the repetition of this. Remember how many days he did it? Seven days. He repeated this process seven days, preparing that priest to minister before the Lord. And then in chapter 9, we, we read in Leviticus about the inauguration ceremony. And Aaron fulfills his calling, takes up his new role as a high priest. I touched on how after seven days of this exact same consecration ceremony, still the first thing that Aaron does is offer an offering for himself. And then finally, Aaron sacrifices on behalf of the people. He stands as mediator. He fills the gap and offers their offerings for them that their sins might be atoned. That their fellowship might be restored. And we have no doubt it is. Because at the end, Aaron lifts up his hands and he blesses the people. You remember this blessing from Numbers chapter 6. We read it last week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is a fellowship blessing. Blessing from the Lord instead of curses. The Lord's favor instead of his consuming wrath. Peace with the Lord instead of enmity. And this is fellowship with the Lord. The glory of the Lord there appeared to all people at the end of this. And there they are. The Lord's people before the Lord. And they respond appropriately. They fall on their faces and they worship their God for restoring that fellowship. But as you might anticipate from the beginning of the story, the way that was foreshadowed and the way that was established is ultimately the way that is neglected. Here we see the way neglected. In fact, we could say this. Not only is the way neglected, but the fellowship the Lord established with Israel came to the same end as Adam's fellowship. So, so all of that, eight, eight and nine of, of Leviticus, right? Seven days of, of consecration in order for God to have fellowship with his people. And it just comes to the same end as Adam's. And you see that, right? If, if Abraham and his seed were a new Adam, Israel, if they were a new humanity, their fate was ultimately no different than the first Adam. Israel, just like Adam, was exiled from their garden sanctuary. Israel, just like Adam, forfeited their fellowship with God. And in part, we need to understand something about this neglect. This this break in fellowship was the result of the failed mediation of the high priest and the priesthood in Israel. In part, this break in fellowship was the result of the failed mediation of the high priest and the priesthood in Israel. The high priest failed once again. Don't miss this. You know what's astounding? We don't even get past the inauguration ceremony before half of the high priest have been apostatized for offering up strange fire and are consumed by the Lord's wrath. There's an, there's an ominous foreshadowing here of what's to come. Because the rest of the story, the rest of the priest are equally disappointing. <laughs> Sure, there are are some moments of renewal and faithfulness, but it's always, always, always followed by gross apostasy and rebellion. And so the Lord will eventually declare this from the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 22, verse 26, the Lord will say, "Her, Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy, and have, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. But remember, it's the job of the priest to guard that fellowship. It's the job of the priest to distinguish between the holy and the only unholy, to teach the people to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. Instead, the Lord's profaned. The very ones who are designated to protect the holiness of the Lord are the ones who profane his name. And so the entire Old Testament, it closes with with the priesthood ultimately being unable to fulfill its role. I want you to look at at Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I think it's on the screen. Yes, it's on the screen. Malachi 1, verses 6 through 10. And we're going to look at Malachi 3 a little bit later, but, but I want you to look at this with me. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm the father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way we've defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible? And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? 
And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors? That's astounding. The Lord just said right there that he would be pleased with them simply shutting down the priesthood. He doesn't call out for one to come and reform the priesthood. It's gotten so bad. He says, is there anyone here who would even put a fire to this and stop offering the sacrifices? Because that would be good. He finishes, so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. You remember the study on the fire that we did? He says, just stop. Just put it out. Stop the fire. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Now that, that's hard to read, isn't it? It's hard. This is God's people. And so once again, we're at the end of the Old Testament and we find ourselves in a similar place as Adam. Exiled from God's presence. Fellowship has been broken. And we get to the end of the Old Testament we have the same question we had at the very beginning. Is there any hope? That, that fellowship with God, the very purpose for which we're created, that it would be restored? Is there any hope? Malachi ultimately gives us this hope in, in chapter 3, verse 1. Same book, a couple chapters later. Look what he says. The Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his people, his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. His answer is, The Lord himself will come, and he continues, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, the priest, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offer in righteousness. Okay, hope remains. That's good news, right? The promise to provide a, fe- a way for fellowship through a mediator remains. The Lord promises to reestablish as the way for the priest. And how many times have we seen that in Scripture? The priests were not faithful, but God is faithful. He would still provide a way for fellowship through a mediator. Indeed, now we see the way is secured. So that the way was foreshadowed, it's established, it's ultimately neglected, but now we're going to see the way secured. Let's look at that now. Because this is exactly what God did in sending His Son to become a man. You understand this? In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, you have the coming of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, just as was prophesied in Malachi. And in the carnation, incarnation, excuse me, you have the birth of a faithful high priest. Part of what we celebrate in the Christmas season is a birth of a faithful high priest. Jesus lived a sinless life. Remember that concept and the theme of, of priesthood. There's your offering of praise and thanksgiving that was necessary in the form of obedience. You, you note-takers are about to get really mad with me because I'm about to give you the next couple in a row. Just see me after, okay? Don't get mad. I'm sorry. Just copy off of somebody who has a bulletin, okay? It'll be online tomorrow, sure. Jesus lived a sinless life, offering God the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that Adam refused to and that the priest in Israel never could. It's important. I want us to have these because I want us to, to resonate. We'll, We'll work with it. 
a little bit after this. Jesus lived a sinless life, offering God the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving that Adam refused to, and that the priest in Israel never could. For this reason, Jesus was able to offer his own life as the perfect blood sacrifice for the atonement of God's people. It's it's for this very reason Jesus was able to offer his own life as the perfect blood sacrifice for the atonement of God's people. Now, this is why, by the way, this is why it's so important to have a right understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. It, It matters what you believe about that. See, his life was of infinite value because he was God, fully. But his life was only an appropriate sacrifice for the guilt of mankind because he was fully human. Man had to shed his blood. Man had to pay his price. Jesus Christ, and only Jesus Christ, is the perfect mediator because he's fully God and fully man. If if you don't get that, if you don't at least have that basic understanding, then your idea of salvation is going to be skewed. But, but Jesus is the true and better high priest who mediates the perfect and permanent fellowship with God. And that's what we've been waiting for from the very beginning. I mean, we just landed the plane a couple of times and apparently we abandoned the plane idea because I forgot to get back to that. But we went through and we stopped a couple of places. But you could do this throughout the entire story. It's all there. The theme is there all the way through. He doesn't just provide a way. Jesus is the way. He doesn't just stand in the gap. But Jesus unites us to himself by his spirit that we become partakers of his divine nature. You know what that means? It means unmediated fellowship with God. And as I consider Leviticus chapter 8 and 9 in the context of this overarching theme of redemptive history, I couldn't help but to see something I wanted to mention last week, but I couldn't. And that is the connection of the seven-day consecration of the high priest and Jesus' last seven days as portrayed in the Gospels. I want you to think about this. Compare with me the seven days of consecration of the high priest to the last seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. I really hope you listen to last week's. But the contrasts are informative as the similarities. Remember, Aaron was anointed with oil by Moses. At the outset of his consecration, he was anointed with oil. Jesus was anointed by a seemingly insignificant woman just before entering into Jerusalem to perform his high priestly work. Aaron was clothed in a special tunic, a royal robe, ephod, breastpiece, royal attire, and a turban with a crown holy unto the Lord. Meanwhile, Jesus was stripped by Gentile soldiers clothed in a royal robe and a crown of thorns, only to be mocked and beaten. Aaron ends his consecration with a covenant meal, symbolizing the restored fellowship that he shared with God. Jesus establishes a new covenant meal, symbolizing the breaking of the sweetest, purest fellowship between son and father. Aaron offered sheep, goat, and calves, first for himself and then for the people of God. Jesus, who had no need of offering anything for himself, offered his perfect holy life for the sins of his people. And at the end of his inaugural sacrifice, Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. Likewise, Jesus, just before the ascension, lifted up his hands and blessed his disciples. Listen, look look at this text in Luke 24, verse 50. I never noticed this before until even this week in my study. I'm so glad the Lord brought me to Luke 24. I was reading and preparing, and I caught this. It's mesmerizing to me. Look at 24. Luke 24, verse 50. 
This is what Luke wants to communicate to us. I'm sure of it. And he, being Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands. And he blessed them. Have we seen that before? Certainly that's what the priests do. What was the blessing that Aaron blessed with? It was a blessing of restored fellowship. As partial as it was, how much better, sweeter, and greater is the fellowship blessing that we receive from the Lord Jesus Christ? Also recognizing the glory of God in Christ. How do his disciples respond? In the same way Israel did. They worship. And if that's not clear, go to Hebrews. We're going to go to Hebrews. Hebrews' exposition of Jesus' role as the high priest is the clearest exposition of any of Jesus' roles in all of Scripture. It is easy to follow him as prophet and king because it's, it's pervasive. But nowhere is there such a thorough exposition of any office of Jesus Christ than this one as high priest in the book of Hebrews. And that in itself is very telling. Jesus was appointed to be our high priest, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Hebrews 5, verse 9, And having perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus holds the priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, being Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Fellowship is completely and permanently, eternally restored in Christ. In his priestly role, he always intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 10, 14, I don't know, 9, 14. This is 9, 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He cleanses the consciousness of his people to serve the living God. He offered his body as a sacrifice. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14 of chapter 10. For for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Christian, that's you. He has perfected you. So so what is the result of Jesus being our high priest? Can we summarize it? It's fellowship. It's fellowship. In a word, God provided a way through Jesus for eternal fellowship with his people. And friends, remember, this is what you were created for. We we tend to have a a, a simple risk-reward view of Christianity. To think that we only come to Christ because I don't want to risk an eternity of hell and I want the reward of eternity of heaven. Friends, the reward of the gospel is fellowship with God. That's it. And that's all you need. It's the best thing in life. Have unhindered, unmediated fellowship with God. And we have it because of Christ. This is the actual conclusion of the writer of the book of Hebrews. This is how he closes the book in Hebrews 10. He says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, that's fellowship. Verse 20, By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us do what? Verse 22. Let us draw near 
with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what's the conclusion for the writer of Hebrews? We have fellowship. That which we lost in the garden, which looked utterly hopeless to regain throughout all of human history, has now been fully restored in Christ. And we're partakers of that fellowship. And the Jewish Christians that received this letter, they were encouraged to draw near to God. It wasn't just a statement, but it was an imperative. It was something to be done. You have fellowship with God. Have it. Adam was exiled from the presence of God. Israel experienced a restoration of that fellowship that Adam lost. But even they were not told to draw near to the holy place of God lest they die. But Christians... We're told that we may enter the holiest of places by the blood of Jesus. So draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I mean, guys, honestly, we could stop right here and fall on our faces in worship, couldn't we? It would be appropriate. But let's see if we can find where that plane crashed and get back on it one more time. Let's see if we can find this all the way through. We're going to travel into the future this time. And go to the very end of God's story, which he's revealed for us in the book of Revelation. And we'll see the way consummated. This is the way consummated. John writes about the day Christ returns. And he describes the picture like this. He says, but I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. The glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. It's a beautiful picture either way, but in light of the few full view of Scripture and the loss of fellowship, the longing for fellowship, our fellowship secured in Christ, this imagery has to evoke in us a picture of unbroken, unmediated fellowship. Friends, this is more than the garden restored. This is the garden perfected. No temple, no sacrifices. No priest, only God and His Lamb. No sun or moon, only God's glory and the light of the world who took away our sins. Perfect fellowship, consummated finally in Christ. Now, friends, now church family, now we can fall on our faces in worship. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, How you've stirred my heart this week as I've considered these things. Lord, I pray you would be gracious to do so among all your people this morning. Father, as we prepare even now to worship you with song again, to eat at your table, I pray that we might do so with hearts overflowing with the love and grace which you have so abundantly poured out in Christ. We were created for fellowship. We are among those who rejected that fellowship. We rebelled, forsook that which you gave us. And yet, Lord, in your love, you provided a way through Jesus Christ for eternal fellowship with us, which we enjoy even now. Father, would you receive this worship, song that we sing, our time reflecting in the invitation, partaking of your table as an offering of praise and thanksgiving. For as we've sung earlier, Father, you are indeed worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Church family, the invitation this morning is the Lord's Supper.
as it always is, by the way. Did you know that? The Lord's Supper is in itself an invitation. It is a call for those who are in Christ to partake of that which, which you've been purchased with. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ spilled for you. And so if you are a believer, then the natural response to hearing the word of God that you have been in fellowship now with the Lord because of His Son, Jesus Christ, is worship. And we worship through, through the ordinance of remembering, allowing it to, to remind us of the very purpose for which we're living, being convicted of sin, confessing that sin to Him and partaking in that which He's offered us, His body, the bread, and His blood, the juice. So as we consider that, for those who are in Christ, we do invite everybody who, who knows themselves to be a Christian um, to partake in this with us, but this is primarily for our church members. Um, and so you're welcome to partake if you're not a church member, but you know yourself to be in Christ, but, but primarily this is for the sheep. And so if, if you're here this morning, and you don't know, however, whether or not you belong to Christ by faith, you don't know whether or not you have fellowship with God, well, I'll say this again. You do have fellowship with God. Everyone does. The big question is whether yours is unmediated and unhindered or your fellowship is a, a fellowship of one of son or fellowship with the one as enemy. Everyone has a relationship with God. Everyone in this room, everyone ever born has a relationship with God. You either stand in the blood of his son as his son and heir to the kingdom or you stand with his wrath upon you awaiting the just penalty for your sins against him. The question is, who do you belong to? Do you belong to Christ? Is Christ your king? So if you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand, please do not partake in this. This is for believers. But instead, see it as an opportunity to reflect on your life, the desires, the driving force behind your life, who you're living for, your, your relationship with God. And please, after our service, we invite you Come down and ask questions to talk to us about what it means to have a personal relationship, a saving faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we consider this time of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, let's do so with hearts that remain full, understanding the gravity of what we are partaking in, and for Christians rejoicing in the fellowship that God provides. And for non-Christians, an opportunity to recognize that this may be your last day here on planet Earth. And God has so lovingly provided a way for you to have fellowship with Him. Do not miss that opportunity. Repent now and be saved. Would you begin playing as we prepare for the Lord's Supper?